0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. Uh You're saying, right up. That. Biblical, biblical theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in, in the, the tropics. tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh-huh. They say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be it. enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty. Or it's a travesty. Or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture in God's the key is following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. When he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall, to redemption, to consummation. His designs and structure, each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. see the importance of biblical theology yeah. the lord has not decided to keep us guessing thank you lord he gave us the word providing us correction in yeah. the spirit for guidance and direction biblical theology is like protection From ourselves and our improper reflections So we can follow the Bible, not just our affections Otherwise, we will chop it into sections And not make the connections like the doctrine of election And Satan is waiting to slice us in the meat. If our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep Theology is like the root of a tree Which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath Lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless And we'll experience true peace within our depth Because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and it is death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God,
2: deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou. Glad you guys could join us today. Got a good show lined up for you guys. Going to be looking at the topic of Mormonism with uh, apologist Rob Savoka, who uh, we'll talk a little bit more about him in uh, about 30 minutes when we bring him on. But it should be a good show. You know, Utah is getting ready to celebrate July 24th, which is, uh, I believe, an official holiday out there. And we'll just, uh, we'll talk about what that means to Utah and uh, Mormonism. We'll get into some of their doctrines, what it is they believe, and talk to Rob a little bit about what he does out there. So... We'll, we will be doing that, uh, bringing him on in about uh, 25 minutes or so. So glad you guys could be with us today. If you've not liked our Facebook page, go to facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse. That's facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Paloos. And when you go there, you'll see that uh, we've done all kinds of shows on different topics dealing with apologetics and theology. We've done shows for the last three years, so on there you'll find shows on Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, um, all kind of debates, uh, probably 13 to 14 different debates that we have we have held, so uh, be sure to go to our Facebook page, you can sign up for us on iTunes as well as uh, on your Android uh, with the podcast, uh, whatever app you use with that, so be sure to, to look for us. So Glad you guys could join us again. I wanted to wish my wife a happy birthday. She has uh, been with us for most of the three years. She had to take a little time off when the baby came, but uh, she is with us every now and then. She gets to come and, and uh, do an interview last week, and she turns 36 years old today. Oh, she's going to hit me for doing her age. But uh, it is her birthday so we wanted to look at for the first few minutes of the show. Uh, we, we Just so you guys know, um, we have a couple of really great months coming ahead of us. Uh, and one of the articles we're going to look at today is a pr- kind of a prelude to our October session. But in August, we're dedicating the month of shows to uh, creation science. So we're going to be looking at what does the Bible say about science as well as getting into intelligent design and kind of uh, contrasting uh, some of those uh, bigger issues. So we've already got booked a couple of uh, pretty big-name people. Jonathan Sarfati from creation.com is going to be joining us. He's going to be talking about his new uh, commentary on the book of Genesis that he's done through chapters 1 through 11, looking at what the Bible says about creation as well as uh, science. Looking at the flood, looking at evolution, et cetera, and really, really digging deep into some of that stuff. Uh, we're going to ha- also have Rob Carter from Creation.com on. He's going to be doing his uh, we're going to do his talk, uh, Evolution's Achilles Heel. Achilles Heel. And also, we will have Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute come on. And we're trying to book a interview with uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Not sure if that's if that's going to happen. Uh, I hope it does. We'll keep you guys updated with that, but we're going to be looking at Darwin's Doubt, as well as the new book that comes out July 21st. Uh, I think it, I believe it's called Debating Darwin's Doubt: uh, Stephen Meyer Answering His Critics. And Darwin's Doubt is a is an excellent book uh, that came out probably a year or two ago, and uh, was an Amazon bestseller really took a look at the Cambrian explosion and a lot of the problems uh, that would pose for the standard theory of uh, Darwinian evolution. And so that book is a is a real powerhouse uh, challenging the uh, evolutionary paradigm. And it come under a lot of criticism and a lot of critics came after it. And so in that book, Dr. Meyer uh, answers his critics and uh am waiting to get a copy of that, but uh, we will be doing a whole show on that as well. So join us for August. Uh, in October, we are going to follow uh, the tradition that we've done for two years and dedicate the whole month of October to the Protestant Reformation. And uh, you know, people know that we do apologetics on this show, but we are unashamedly Protestant in our approach. And I think it's important that we look at these issues and um I'm I, I personally believe that uh you know we need to have the discussion ongoing, ongoing dialogue uh with our Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends. So we will be hopefully having a couple of debates. Uh believe we're gonna be doing some shows on how we got the canon. That's a big question that comes up a lot. That's exactly how we got the canon of Scripture. I'm sure we'll be doing another show on Sola Scriptura, because that is an issue that comes up a lot, and also uh, justification. So I'm currently right now looking for a couple of Roman Catholic priests who are trained and well-qualified who are willing to come on the show and have a friendly dialogue. So if you know anybody... Uh, have them e- uh, message us. Go to, go to again, our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse, message us, and uh, love to be able to, to work that out. So what I wanted to talk about for the first few minutes, kind of um, setting the stage for October, uh, there's an article on the equip.org website, which is the website of Hank Hanegraaff. Um, uh the title of the article is What is Sola Scriptura? What is Sola Scriptura? And the article is written by Dr. Norman Geisler and uh, Ralph McKenzie. And this is from their book, I believe, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Evangelicals, Agreements and Disagreements. And it's a, it's a very good book. Uh, Dr. Geisler, you know, is uh, one of my heroes of the faith, so to speak. But, um, you know, I think me and him would probably come to some different conclusions towards the end of the book. But uh, I think that I think his book is is brilliant. Uh, it's a very good defense of Protestantism, as well as I think it's very fair to the to the Roman Catholic position. And so um, I want to look at this article because I think it's it's uh, a good representation of what sola scriptura is. And I think as Protestants, we need to make sure we're having a right understanding of what Sola Scriptura is, because if we don't, uh, it's, it's easy to uh, easy to knock down. Our, our opponents are, are easily able to, to show problems with it. So we have to have a good understanding of what Sola Scriptura is. And of course, Sola Scriptura is Latin, means uh, scripture alone. This is the uh, formal cause of the Reformation. Uh, The material cause was the doctrine of sola fide, or justification. But today, let's look at sola scriptura. As a definition, sola scriptura uh, means that scripture alone is the primary and absolute source for all doctrine and practice, or you could say faith and morals. Sola scriptura implies several things. First, the Bible is a direct revelation from God. As such, it has divine authority. For what the Bible says, God says. Now, Roman Catholics would also believe that the Bible is the Word of God and a revelation from God, and that it has divine authority. And they would also agree that you know what the Bible says, God says. Uh, the difference would come when you're dealing with uh, Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox that they're going to disagree that the Bible is the primary or absolute source for all doctrine, faith, and practice. They would also uh, elevate tradition, and of course we're also going to disagree on uh, the canon of Scripture, as Roman Catholics also add uh, the Deuterocanonical in it as well, which Protestants uh, reject. So this is sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, The Bible is sufficient. It is all that is necessary for faith and practice. For Protestants, the Bible alone means the Bible only, is the final authority for our faith. Now, uh, as you see, this would be the dividing line between the Roman Catholics and Protestants. Uh, We say the Bible is sufficient. All that is necessary for faith and practice. Now, when we say the Bible alone, I think we need to be careful. Um, we need to to flesh that out a little bit. When we say that the Bible alone, what we're not saying is we don't need church history, uh, we don't need creeds, we don't need catechisms. We're not saying any of that. I, I for one, uh, love the creeds i love the catechisms i uh, take my little my taking my little nephew 7 years old through the westminster children's catechism and i and i love that it's not saying that uh they don't even have any authority what sola scriptura is saying is that sola scriptura alone is the is the ultimate authority meaning all other catechisms creeds etc must bow to Scripture. But it's not saying the creeds are not important. It's not saying church history is not important. It's not saying we shouldn't study the catechisms. And for me, sadly, I think it's it's been a tragedy uh, to see a lot of that stuff go in the Protestant traditions. You know, I grew up in an Assembly of God church, came from uh, came from a Mormon church. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit when we get Rob on. But uh, in the Assembly of God Church, and this is not to bash Assemblies of God, I love my, my Pentecostal brothers, uh, but uh, in that denomination, um, you're not going to hear a lot about uh, Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed or Athanasian Creed or uh, catechisms, etc. It's, it's very much um, me and my Bible. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, and there is not a lot of great emphasis on church history, uh, et cetera. And I I think that's with a lot of Protestant denominations. Um, I'm now more of the Reformed persuasion. I would call myself a Reformed Baptist. And with that, I look at uh, things like the... 1689 London Baptist Confession uh and I see the importance of having a confession um I study the creeds uh, uh can agree with most of what's in the Westminster um Westminster larger and shorter catechisms as I say taking my nephew through their their children's one um, so you know, I've got friends uh, who are who are Lutherans, and again, it's kind of a, uh, high church or Presbyterians, uh, OPC or ARP, PCA, where again there is a emphasis on understanding and reciting and and learning the creeds. And uh, some, like my Lutheran friends, will and Anglican friends, follow the liturgical calendar. Those things are wonderful, friends, and I would never say uh, Protestants shouldn't study them. I, th- I think the problem is we don't study them enough. And I think because of that, we've seen a real watering down um, of of the Christian faith. So we just want to be sure when we're saying Scripture alone, we're not saying, therefore, you can't read any book but the Bible and you shouldn't, you know, uh, study the creeds or the confessions. That's simply a, a caricature. It's a straw man. It's not what Protestants historically have ever taught. There's great um, need to have the church and be part of the local church. The has always taught that, um, or Christianity has always taught that, uh, that we need to be part of a, a local church and that we're not uh, lone rangers because you have this idea, uh, idea of um, not only sola scriptura but solo scriptura. And that's kind of the view that's sometimes pushed today—that it's just me and my Bible, and I don't need to be under the authority of a pastor or of a church, uh, et cetera. And that is—that uh, is very uh, dangerous. That is a dangerous position. We need, as believers, to be under the authority of our pastor. We need to be in the local church, and need to make sure that uh, you know we're having other believers that are walking with us, you know, on the journey, so to speak. You know, uh we don't want to be coming up with, you know, reading a passage of scripture and coming up with ideas uh that you know nobody in church history for the last two thousand years has ever had. That's that's dangerous. We don't want that. Uh church is there for checks and balances and is is a good thing for us. So just a note on that. Uh, The third point, they say it's sola scriptura, uh, the authority of Scripture. So the third thing is the Scriptures uh, not only have sufficiency, but they also possess final authority, final authority. So they are the final court of appeal on all doctrinal and moral matters. However good they may be in giving guidance, all the fathers, popes, and councils are fallible. Only the Bible is infallible. Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Right? So, scripture alone, the the bibliography, the writings alone are that which is God-breathed, that which is the word of God. And so, again... Uh, as so far as the creeds and the confessions, etc., align with the scriptures, uh, they're correct. But when they uh, when they deviate in those matters, we would say that uh, we don't put the traditions over scripture. Fourth, uh, the clarity of scripture. So the Bible is uh, perspicu- perspicuous perspicuity of Scripture. (laughs) It's a hard word to say. The perspicuity of Scripture uh, does not mean that everything in the Bible is perfectly clear, uh, but rather that the essential teachings are. Right? So, we have debates. Um, Again, I was mentioning how I was a Reformed Baptist, though. I have my Reformed Presbyterian brothers who would hold to uh, infant baptism. Um... There's differences such as mode of baptism, uh, the Lord's Supper, how, uh, when should we do it, uh, how many times, um, etc. Uh, there's a lot of debates in eschatology. Uh, is it uh, a mill or post mill, pre mill? Um, the age of the earth. You know, is it a young earth? Or is it an old earth? Um, you know, those kind of issues are are in-house debates meaning that one can hold a variety of different views on those topics and still be considered uh, a Christian uh, if they are, you know, holding to the core essential doctrines of the faith. So uh, we we need to to make sure that, you know, we we make the right division that, um, you know, not all teachings are essential to the faith. Uh, People do differ on what is, uh, you know, certain issues of non-essential teachings. But what they're saying is, um, he goes on to say, popularly put um, in the Bible, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. This does not mean, as Catholics often assume, that Protestants obtain no no help from the fathers and early councils. Indeed, Protestants accept the great theological and Christological pronouncements of the first four ecumenical councils. What is more, most Protestants have high regard for the teaching of the early fathers, though obviously they do not believe they are infallible. So so this is not to say that there is no usefulness to Christian tradition, but only that it is, is of secondary importance, and we talked a little bit about that, so... You you have um, sola scriptura, and you also have the phrase sometimes called tota scriptura, meaning that the totality of Scripture, uh, and that is actually our next point on the um, Scripture, interpreting Scripture, sometimes called the analogy of faith. And this is known that uh, if you have difficulty in understanding an unclear text of Scripture, we turn to other biblical texts. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. In the scriptures, clear text should be used to interpret the unclear ones. So, for example, I have talked to many people involved in the Church of Christ, Boston movement. And in that, you will have uh, those who will claim one must be water baptized in order to be saved. That water baptism is the instrumental cause of your regeneration, not faith, and of course, the, the, what they would, would do is point to uh, a handful of scriptures and build a whole doctrine on that. And I think what is important is we need to remember that you don't ever build an entire doctrine off of off of a you know a handful of scriptures and overturn mountains of other scriptures that would say the opposite, right? So uh, all Orthodox Christians would believe we should be baptized. That is a command of our Lord uh, and of our Master. And I would say if one refuses to to be baptized, well, then it would really, for me, cause a lot of questions of, you know, is is the person really born again? Uh, Because, you know, Christians get baptized, that's what we're told to do, but uh, our faith is what the instrument that God uses to save us, we're saved through faith, by faith, right, so we have to be careful not to build a whole scaffolding of scripture based on uh, a few, a few verses, Others may um you know some of the the debates on issues of um baptism for the dead, for example, you know you have i think one place in scripture that mentions something about that, and uh, you have some denominations that you know build a whole theology off that and would go against and contradict other scriptures, so we always have to interpret always have to interpret scripture in light of scripture uh and be careful not to do violence who are already established texts. So, uh, again, this article, uh, What is Sola Scriptura? Uh, We'll throw it up on our Facebook page. Uh, It is on equip.org, and uh, the authors are Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie. And come October, we will spend a good uh, month or so going over the issues of Sola Scriptura uh justification by faith alone and hope to get a couple of roman catholic uh priests on and uh host some debates we've done some in the past and i think they've been uh, very productive and so we will do that uh, again this coming october again don't forget in august we're going to dedicate the month uh, looking at intelligent design and evolution and we'll have uh, some guys on like jonathan serfati Casey Luskin with the Discovery Institute, possibly Stephen Meyer. Uh, we'll get you more information uh, about whether he will be able to come on the show or not. But uh look forward to his new book coming out, uh, uh, Debating Darwin's Doubt. We're going to be looking at uh, some of the stuff that his critics have said. And so we will, we will do that. So let's go ahead and take a break right now, and we will come back with uh, our guest, Rob Savolka, and we are going to uh dive kind of deep here into the to the end of the pool and look at mormonism compare it with orthodox christianity find out a little bit about what rob is doing out there in utah maybe some ways we can help him and, and support him and pray for him etc so we'll go ahead and take a break and we'll be back in just a moment
1: you're listening to the anchorberg minute with apologist and best selling author dr john Ankerberg.
3: how can we know that god exists There are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for
1: life.
0: For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org.
3: Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's Flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of Earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The Flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the Flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God.
0: To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com.
3: All right. Thank you for
2: joining us again. We're back with our friend Rob Savolka. Let me tell you a little bit about Rob. He has... He has more degrees than a thermometer, to be to be frank. Uh, he earned a M.A. in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics from Talbot School of Theology, an M.A. in Philosophy from San Diego State University, an M.A. in Theological Studies from Talbot School of Theology, and a B.A. in Biblical Studies from Biola University. And there's, there's a lot more uh, we can say about that. But, uh, Rob, were you there?
0: Yes, I'm here. Thanks for having me, Debbie.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, talk to us uh, maybe a little bit about um your your background. Uh, did you grow up in a in a Christian home or how did you uh come to know the Lord and how did you get involved in apologetics?
0: Well, I uh I did grow up in a Christian home and my Dad, when I was, I don't know, about four years old or so, invited me in his bedroom and sat me down and said, look, Rob, you got a choice to make for the rest of your life. You can either follow Jesus and go to heaven, or you can not follow Jesus and go to hell. So what would you like? And I said, <laughs> well, I, I think I'd like to go to heaven. <laughs> so I prayed, and I asked Jesus to come into my life at a very young age, and I've been living for him ever since. Now, I got interested in apologetics when we got the knock at the door, and my mom opened the door, and here were two Mormon missionaries. I didn't know who they were, but my mom, in a very polite way, said, well, thank you, we're not interested, and shut the door on them. And I said, Mom, who are these guys? She said, well, these are Mormon missionaries. I said, well, wh- what are they all about? She said, well, they think you've got to get to heaven by your own good works. And I said, no, they really believe that? And I was probably about, I don't know, seven years old or so, okay? Well, I went down the street chasing these Mormon missionaries down. I hid behind the bushes of my buddy's place. And as they were coming up the driveway, I jumped up. I pointed my finger at them. I said, you can't get to heaven by your own good works. And they pull the knee, and open up the scripture. I I don't even know what it was. It was probably the James 2 passage, Faith Without works is Dead. That's a famous passage Mormons like to throw out. And I just kind of nodded my head and ran home. And that was my introduction to Mormonism right there. I was really intrigued by the whole thing. But it wasn't until probably about eight years later, when I was uh, 15 years old, And I was invited by my uncle, who was pastoring a church in Orange County, and he invited me. I was living in Houston at the time. And I was in high school, and he said, hey, would you like to come out and be a part of our summer high school ministry? We would do different things during the summer and uh, go down to Mexico, and we'd do beach evangelism around town. We would do a junior high camp. We would uh, bike down the California coast. We, would, One of the weeks was going up to Utah. So the youth wow. pastor got a guy by the name of Kurt Van Gordon, the Utah Gospel Missions. Back then it was Pace Ministries, Practical Apologetics and Christian Evangelism. And Kurt had been working with Dr. Walter Martin, the late Dr. Walter Martin, at the Christian Research Institute. Dr. Martin That's was the original Bible Answer Man. The real one. graph. Yeah. And so the youth pastor had met Kurt Van Gordon at Talbot School of Theology and invited him to come and train his high school students on Mormonism and how different it was from Christianity. And then they piled us into a bus, I don't know, probably about 40 high school students, and we went up to Utah County, and we started returning the favor of the Mormons, started knocking on their doors. And, you know, that's how I really began to learn about Mormonism. And I was just really intrigued by the whole thing. I, I just thought it was so bizarre that they could be bleeding all this stuff that we're going to be getting into. And so I was trying to get into their mindset. How How is it you guys can believe this stuff when the Bible teaches this very clearly? And so uh, I was intrigued at first. I wasn't really loving. I was pretty much a jerk to them. <laughs> but I, over the years, grew in my love for the Mormon people. And I uh, love the outdoor activities, the beauty of Utah, I'd start coming up every summer to do varying amounts of time and uh, summer mission work up here. And then I moved up here in 1996 and became a missionary with the Utah Gospel Mission under Kurt Van Gordon back around 1999, 2000. Um, I ended up becoming the president of Courageous Christians United back in
2: 2006.
0: Wow. And uh, so most of my ministry is, since I'm living in Utah, is concerning the LDS people. And we also reach out to all different people that attack the Christian faith. We reach out to atheists, agnostics. We have uh, a website called CourageousChristiansUnited.org, which deals with a lot of different intellectual challenges to the Christian faith. And then we also have separate websites. The main website that we have is MormonInfo.org, also better known as com for the Mormons, of course. And then we have for the Muslims, we have MuslimInfo.org. And for the Jehovah Witnesses, we have jwinfo.org. So we, uh, as a matter of fact, we just, at the beginning of the month, there was a uh, convention for Jehovah Witnesses up in Ogden, Utah, which is about an hour north of me. I live in West Jordan, Utah. And okay. so me and my my buddy Eric, we went up to the convention up in Ogden, and we advertised our websites to the Jehovah Witnesses. So done uh, ministry outreach to Muslims as well. So we do a lot of different outreach. Uh, the primary outreach, of course, is to Mormons. And I do work around Temple Square, or other temples that they have, temple openings that they have. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of next month, I'm going to be flying out to. Indianapolis, they have a new temple opening out there in which wow. uh, they open up these temples for about, oh, about a month usually, and they open it up to the public, and the public gets to go through these for free and check them out, and then after that time, they close them down, and then only the worthy can go through these temples. And so we get out there and we advertise our websites. We pass literature, DVDs out, and we dialogue with people. We preach to them, and we uh, in, we we try to convert Mormons and we try to inform others, inoculate others, why they shouldn't join the Mormon Church. So we do that. We I, I'm out in front of high schools. Uh we do different Mormon events. Uh just last month there was a big Manti pageant, the Mormon miracle pageant, right in the center of the state of Utah, where hundreds of Christian missionaries come from all over the world. We had people from England, Malaysia, Jamaica, uh so people come these Christians just love the Mormon people so much, they come to this pageant at the end of June every year, and the Mormons put on this play performance outside their temple at dusk. But before that performance, they've got about three, three three-and-a-half hours to kill. They open up the gates at 6 o'clock, and people go in. They try to get a good seat. And then people come and go uh, up until the pageant starts. And so we're right out, out front of the pageant area, on the main street there, they close off the cars, and we do evangelism to the Mormon people there. So we do that. We have a, uh, I do a lot of work online, obviously, with my websites. I do uh, lecturing. Uh, we also have an ex-Mormon meetup that meets every oh, wow. month at our home in West Jordan, Utah. And we put on a dinner, we provide the main course, and then we invite people to bring a side dish or dessert. And then we have somebody share their testimony, how they got out of Mormonism and gave their life to the Lord. If you wow. want more information on that, I have an, another website specifically for that. It's called org. So I invite you to check that out.
2: Man, it's, a, it's amazing. You have time to do it. To do anything with all the uh, with all the stuff that you're doing, man. That is really really great. You know, Utah is, is near and dear to my heart, as I uh, grew up for 23 years in Utah. Mm-hmm. I, I still have uh, a brother and sister that live in Ogden, and and my older brother lives in Tooele. So that's it's good to know that uh, people like yourself are out there, and and you guys are doing evangelism. Yeah, well, I know. Yeah, I, I know one of the things that you're going to get hit with a lot is uh, a lot of criticism as far as, um, you know, when you stand out. But I've seen some of the videos, and uh, Rob, Rob is not a, a mean guy at all, folks. I've seen the videos. We so encourage you to see them. But a lot of the accusations are going to come that, you know, you're just being anti-Mormon and you're unloving to sit out there and tell these people that they're uh, going to hell. So what would you say right. to those those kind of people that uh, don't appreciate you as much as I do?
0: Well, I, I tell them all sorts of things. What comes to my mind immediately is, what uh, these people that are criticizing me of being unloving really don't have a clue what love is. Uh, they don't know mm-hmm. God. These people are headed to hell, and they need to know the Bible. Who is love first john four eight says God is love, and so when you when you see love incarnate in the Bible in the person of Jesus Christ, you see that he upset a lot of people Now he wasn't being a jerk he he wasn't meddling he he loved people and he was trying to save people from spending eternity away from the only true God. So real love Mm -hmm. entails warning people of danger. And Jesus, the prophets, Jesus' apostles did this over and over again. The Apostle Paul said that we demolish, we destroy arguments in 2 Corinthians 10 Verses four through five, the apostle Jude tells us in verse three he says to be to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The apostle Peter says in first peter three fifteen to be ready always to give a reason an argument for the defense of the faith." but doing this with gentleness and respect. So, look, I love the Mormon people. I love the Jehovah Witnesses. I love the Muslims. I love the people that are practicing homosexuality. I love the people that are bent against the God of the Bible. But that entails that I have to stand for God. I have to stand for truth. And when I do that, Jesus warned us that they're going to hate you. So right. if nobody hates you when you do your evangelism, well, maybe you're not doing your evangelism right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Uh, I So I get out there and I tell people the truth is as lovingly as I can. Now, sometimes that looks a little funny to people because I want to reach out to as many people as I possibly can. So a lot of times I'll end up preaching. Well, to preach, a lot of times I have to raise up my voice as a trumpet, as Isaiah did to the Israelites, or as Jesus cried to the people from the temple. You know, you have to raise your voice if you want people to hear you. So on the surface of it, if you're not really thinking about things and just give me a quick look at what I'm doing uh, instead of really listening to what I'm trying to convey, well, you might walk away thinking that I just have hate for the Mormon people and I just want to beat up on them. Well, that's so far from the truth. Exactly. So I, I married an ex-Mormon gal who came to know the Lord about 12 years ago and most of my family is Mormon my mother-in-law wow. used to teach at BYU Provo she taught at BYU Idaho she's very hardcore Mormon that whole extended family on her side as well as my uh, late Father-in-law side are all very hardcore LDS people, and I love them. But that just and so they look at me a little differently. You know, they see that I'm out there doing this stuff, and they're not very happy about what I do. But they understand that I love them, and I feel like I've gotta I've gotta warn them. Because I love him right. so much, I don't want to see these people end up in hell. I want to see these people in heaven with me someday. And so that entails that through the foolishness of preaching, as First Corinthians 1 talks about, God has ordained to save some. So I get out there and I preach. And I tell people that they need to repent. Just like Jesus did. Jesus said, unless you repent, you're all likewise going to perish. In Luke thirteen that's three. Right. So, I look, I don't care about being politically correct. And that's mainly what love has become these days. It's that you don't rock the boat. Walter Martin used to talk about, we got a disease in the Christian church today. And it goes by the Latin name, non-rockabotus. Well, the PC crowd has influenced the church to where they think that love means you just shut up and you get along and you don't make waves. Right. Up here in Utah, it's called you don't shake the beehive, and the beehive is the state symbol of Utah. Well, Jesus shook the boat. He rocked the boat. You see, the apostles rocked the ball. Why do you think that the apostles, for the most part, ended up dying for their faith? Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Because he kissed little lambs and uh, hugged little babies? No, of course not. He told the the Jews that they were whitewashed sepulchers, a bunch of hypocrites, that they were children of the devil. And unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. Right. Well, uh, it's very obvious to see why they uh, got upset with him. So, right. Uh, I it's just par from the course that people are going to get upset when you tell yep. them the truth, that they repent. Nobody likes to hear that. <laughs> But if you that's have right. a heart for God, those people that really have a heart for God, they're gonna be receptive to what you have to say. And they're gonna to wanna to have their hearts changed by God. They're gonna to want to repent of their sins and they're gonna to wanna to follow the true and living God of the Bible. And so we get out there and we tell people the truth in love as best we can. So
2: that's yeah, it takes a lot of love to, to do that. To be willing to tell people that uh, they're an error, and you're willing to show them why they're an error, and it's uh, it's always easier just to kind of pat them on the back and tell them everything's fine. And as they do that, they're on the way to hell. And so, yeah, yeah and that to, me, to me
0: is a sign that they really don't love
2: people, or they yeah. don't
0: understand. They have a, a very insufficient biblical understanding that people are dying and headed to hell. But if they really believe that, then they would tell people the truth and it would upset people. And and so they're either just ignorant or uh, they really hate people and they don't give a rip about them. Right. Well, I, I'm informed. I know Jesus. And I love people. And because of that, I'm gonna be hated just like Jesus was hated. It's the false prophets that everyone speaks well of, Jesus said in Luke six, twenty six. And he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's what they did with false prophets. So I don't want to be oh. like the false prophets. I wanna be a true prophet of God and get the word out to these people who need the God
2: of the Bible. Amen. One of the reasons that I asked you to come on today, July 23rd, was because tomorrow uh it's kind of a big day for for those living in Utah. Most people I don't think that are that are not in Utah don't really uh know that uh Mormons and and the state of Utah really celebrate tomorrow as a holiday, but talk to us a little bit about uh what July 24th uh is to the Mormons and uh kind of how how the state celebrates that.
0: Yeah, the state celebrates it by being uh, 4th of July, part two, basically. Uh, It's celebrated with fireworks, with a big parade uh, downtown. Uh, It is in commemoration of the pioneers that crossed the plains and ended up in Utah in 1847, so it's also called Days of 47 Parade that we had on the, celebrating on the 24th of July. And so it's a very big day when uh, Brigham Young and all the pioneers came out here and started settling Utah, and Utah is uh, down to around 60% LBS now, it is the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in downtown Salt Lake City. And so when most of the people up here are Mormon, it's their history, then it's a very big deal to the LDS people. It is a state holiday. Uh, my wife was just asking if the mail is delivered uh, tomorrow. And yes, the mail is still delivered tomorrow because uh, that's a federal uh, event,
2: the main,
0: and oh. so uh, this <laughs> as a matter of fact, my wife, when she moved down to Texas, where I met her in Texas years ago, she was from Utah, a good Utah county girl, and she just assumed that everybody else outside of Utah celebrated Pioneer Day,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it's just a uh, it's just a state holiday, yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, do you guys are going to be going out tomorrow and going to the parade and doing some evangelism or what do you guys normally do on that
0: day? Uh, some of my friends usually do. Uh, I like spending time with the family and having a barbecue here with friends.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: uh, I, I don't have any plans on going out. I have been out before uh, primarily when I was single. Uh, we'd stay out all night and it uh, get up uh, er, early in the morning and hit the parade route. But, uh, yeah, since I'm married now, I like staying at home. I don't like those hours very much. And it's uh, <laughs> very early in the morning. and So I'm going to stay home, yeah.
2: All right. All right, well, that's good. Let's, let's get into this a little bit about kind of uh, contrasting Mormonism with um... – Orthodox Christianity. So what we'll do is we'll just go through the Mormon views first, then we'll look at the same views through the Orthodox view, then we'll, we'll go over some objections maybe that uh, Mormons will bring. I guess first thing we should uh, understand is what is the Mormon view of God? Who is God in Mormonism? Who is Jesus?
0: Well, the best way to understand Mormonism is through a couplet. By the fifth prophet Lorenzo Snow, he made this couplet. Oh, way before he was a prophet back in Joseph Smith's time, and Joseph Smith well, uh, expanded on some the theology. Lightning of it. Some yeah. saw some thunderstorms overnight, but they seem to have
2: been gone. There we go. Sorry about that.
0: Okay, are we back on? <laughs> yeah.
2: Sorry about that. There's a malfunction there. Go ahead.
0: Okay, so. Anyway, the couplet from Lorenzo Snow says, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may be. Let me say that to you again. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may be. So what that entails is, God was once like you and I, a man, who, for all we know, was probably a sinner who grew up and became exalted to becoming a god for us. And so he populate this world or this set of worlds, not all worlds whatsoever, because he was a man like you and I who needed stuff that was already here in existence before he could grow up to become a god for us. So he populated this world or or for all we know maybe other worlds populated this world with a wife that he was sealed to in the temple for time and all eternity at least a wife. He for all we know he probably had many wives because of all the people that are here on earth. And so he populates this world and he's as this, these uh, in the before we came to this earth, we all existed. All the humans and all the angelic creatures, uh, Satan, the fallen cre- angelic creatures, as well. We're all brothers and sisters, younger brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the first born child of heavenly parents. So we all came after the fact and then at a certain point in time we were sent to this earth to gain more tangible bodies of flesh and bones. So our memory of the pre-earth life was taken from us so that we could exercise faith and come to receive the gospel as presented through the Mormon Church. And if we do everything that the Mormon Church requires of us, then we too can grow up and become exalted to being gods ourselves for our own world someday that we will create and populate. And guess who those spirit kids that we have are going to worship? Well, they're not going to worship the god of this world. I'll tell you that. They're going to be worshiping us. Wow. Okay. So, your Christian audience should, I mean, bells should be going off right now. That <laughs> yeah. this is not Christianity, despite the similarity in language, okay? Mormons, right. you use very similar terms. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, salvation, all the resurrection, all these terms, okay? And But what they mean by these things is completely different. And, in fact, it's blasphemous to think that God was a man who in all probability was a sinner. God, for them, could have been a homosexual. He could have been a rapist. He could have been a child molester. He could have been a drug addict. He could have been uh, prideful. He could have been disobedient to a... Th- he could have been all sorts of things because he was a man like you and I who had to go through all the struggles of life and had to become exalted by following some God before him before he could become a God for us. Now, this is just not the God of the Bible. That is a blasphemous devaluing of the God of the Bible, who is the only true God, as Jesus said, in John
2: chapter seventeen. I'm yeah, I think, I think God. To bring up yeah. a good point with the language too. About as far as them, because I, I I remember my older brother, you know, a few years back before uh, he had got saved, he was he was really confused, saying, "Well, look, you know, I don't understand why we don't consider Mormons Christians. They love Jesus, they believe in Jesus, they say Jesus died yeah, for right. them." And uh, yeah, so what's what's the problem with that? What would you say?
0: Well, look, Jesus said very clearly, he said in Matthew twenty four twenty four, to beware, because in the last days, false Christ and false prophets are going to arise. Through his apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 11, he said, beware of those who come and teach another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel whom you've, not heard about. Because you might go along with them. And he goes on later to say, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading themselves as apostles of Christ.
2: Wow.
0: Well, because Satan can appear as an angel of light. Now, Mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus, through his apostle Paul, also said, in Galatians 1, he says, if we, or an angel from heaven. Anyone else gives you any other gospel than that which you've already received, it's to be accursed. It's to be damned. You're not to listen to it. So it's very important that we get the right Jesus. Jesus again said in John eight twenty four. he said, unless you believe that I am in the context of which he was speaking of, eternally God, you're going to die in your sins. So it's very important to get the identity of Christ right. Jesus said, again, John 17, verse 3, here is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus, whom thou hast sent. So if I make Devin the Lord Jesus, and I orient my life around Devin, the Messiah, as Jesus in these last days, well then, it should be pretty obvious to everyone that I have a false Jesus, right?
2: Amen <laughs> to that.
0: Simply, <laughs> I don't have to convince you.
2: <laughs> Fairly,
0: I look when you find out that Jesus, according to the Mormon Church, is uh, simply our elder brother in the pre-earth life who was given the distinction of being the God of the Old Testament, who had to become a God sometime in the pre-earth life and then became the God of the Old Testament, who is not literally the creator of all things outside his own being, as the Bible teaches. And it should be obvious to you that the Mormon church is devaluing the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 9 5, God over all, blessed forever. Well, the Jesus of Mormonism is not God over all, blessed forever. The Jesus of Mormonism is not, as Colossians chapter 1 says, the creator of all things. Whether they be in heaven or on earth, whether they be visible or invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities or powers, all things are created by him and for him. So the Mormon Jesus is not that, because the Mormon Jesus is a creation himself in a pre-earth life. And he didn't create our spirits in a pre-earth life because that was the function of heavenly parents. And so there's a lot out there that the Mormon Jesus didn't create. The Mormon Jesus didn't create the planet that he was born on as a spirit child prior to coming to this earth. The Mormon Jesus didn't create his heavenly father's planet that the heavenly father grew up on. The Mormon wow. Jesus didn't create his spirit grandfather's planet. The Mormon Jesus didn't create the elements, the matter itself, because as the Doctrine and Covenants says, section 93, those things are eternal. Now, you got to understand, the Mormons have four books of Scripture. They have the Bible. They use the King James Version of the Bible. They have the Doctrine and Covenants, and they have the Pearl of Great Price, and then they have the Book of Mormon. Well, I'm quoting to you one of their books of scripture, the Doctrine and Covenants, that says that matter is eternal. Well, if matter is eternal, then there's something that the Mormon Jesus didn't create. Mormons also believe, from the Pearl of Great Price, that intelligences that you and I are, are eternal. And so Mormons will say that we have always existed throughout eternity, but yet we were born to heavenly parents in a pre-earth life. So these intelligence intelligence says from eternity get housed in a spirit. Body that is produced by heavenly parents, and the spirit body grows up in a prayer of life, and then at a certain point of time is sent to an earth to take on a more tangible body of flesh and bones, and so that it could grow up and go through the temple and get sealed to a spouse so that they could go on and become gods themselves of their own world someday and receive worship, create this world, and so their creation will be worshiping them. So that's the Mormon Jesus helped out in the creation of this world or a lot of worlds. Mormons like to say, well, God created worlds without number. Okay, but did he create all things? And Mormons will have to say no. Mormons, do even though their own scripture in the Book of Mormon, Third Nephi, Chapter Nine, I believe it is, it says that the Lord Jesus says that he created all things, whether they be in the heavens or in the earth. Well, the Mormon see Mormons say that in their scripture, but what they mean by that is Well, they have to relativize that term all there. So, all concerns this world or the sets of worlds that the Lord Jesus created, but he didn't literally create all things from the beginning. As John chapter 1 says, very clearly, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God, and there was nothing created from the beginning except by the Word. Well, who is the Word? In verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Obviously, a reference to the Lord Jesus. So, first John, or John, excuse me, John, the Gospel of John, chapter one, is clearly affirming from the beginning that Jesus was God, who created all things. Norman, well, uh, that's not the go- case.
2: Yeah, well, I'm was, I was just curious. How do they deal with the scientific um, arguments? Like, you know, it's pretty it's pretty established that the universe had a beginning, that it's not eternal. How do they how do they deal with uh, like the Kalam cosmological argument?
0: They don't deal with it. Their eyes glaze over when they hear stuff like that or if they do deal with it they have to say well not all scientists uh, hold to a literal beginning they start throwing out string theory or all this other hypothetical <laughs> stuff um, yeah. that uh are possible uh, alternatives to a literal big bang a first moment of time and space right uh, yeah i I would agree with you that science as well as philosophy points to a literal beginning of time and space, which requires a cause of quite a different sort from the Mormon God, who is simply right. an exalted man who had to bow down and follow some other God, and that God had to bow down and follow some other God before him, who had to bow down and follow some other God before him, yeah. and so on and so on ad infinitum to where there is no literal beginning. And so Mormon's yeah. such sort of They'll just content themselves with saying, well, uh, we don't know, how, we really can't wrap our minds around how that works, but uh, God will work this all out for us in, in the actual life. But right now, we're just to be content with what God has revealed to us in these latter days, and that is... That the Mormon Church is the only true church, and whatever they say goes.
2: Yeah, just seems uh, you know, just a, a very basic uh, course of a uh, little bit of Thomas Aquinas would just end that in that whole discussion quickly, just based on the kind of being that must exist necessarily uh, in order for there even to be existence itself. That's right. But I guess they, they're yeah, if you want know, really... to go
0: for a contingency argument there, yeah, they needed to go for Aquinas. Aquinas didn't do the kalam argument, but
2: right, uh, he, he did, did a the...
0: contingency, he... a, a dependency argument there. Right. They uh, have some kind of overall explanation for all the dependency that's out there, and Mormons have no ultimate explanation for everything. It's just one dependent thing after another, unless they just uh, merely stipulate the necessity of the universe itself as eternal. Right. And it's a brute given that that's the way it is. Yeah,
2: it'd be be interesting to see uh, someone really use Aquinas's argument the, the third way on them, because even I think he even granted an eternal universe uh in that argument, so even if the universe is eternal, uh it still requires um something holding it into existence right now uh, even in That's right. now so That's that right. yeah that the would Aquinas be interesting did
0: yeah say, but Aquinas did say, yeah, for all he knows philosophically, there was no literal beginning. To the universe, right. but he takes there to be a literal beginning of the universe because of revelation that right. the, of the scriptures. The special revelation found in the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth,
1: which that's was right. a
0: Hebrew way of saying the universe, which is a Greek term for all that is. So yeah, that's uh, you're right.
2: Good stuff, um, so kind of have their their layout of of who God is um you talked a little bit about the the scriptures. Tell us a little bit about the Book of Mormon their other scriptures, and give us their view on uh the Bible yeah, well, they
0: just like any other cult, you have to denigrate the Bible to get your theology up and running, and so Mormons have to 13 articles of faith, which is found in the back of their Pearl of Great Price, and one of those articles of faith, the eighth article of faith, says that the Bible is the word of God insofar as it's correctly translated. Now, what that means to Mormons is, practically speaking, every time the Bible bumps up against latter-day revelation found in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants or the Pearl of Great Price, the Bible must be in error and must not be translated correctly. And Mormons have this reinforced to them in their own scripture, in the Book of Mormon, in 1 Nephi 13, which talks about after the time of the apostles, the church going into the dark ages, and was led astray by the great abominable uh, church, which is the church of Satan. And this church was responsible for pulling out all these plain and precious truths from the Bible, you see. And so Mormons have this drilled in them from the get-go that the Bible cannot be trusted and that it's gone through all these revisions and they played this secular story in their mind of the telephone game, right? If I whisper something in Devin's ear and whispers, Devin whispers it, in his producer's ear and the producer whispers it in somebody else and so on and so on. Well, after about 15 minutes, it gets back to me. It's going to be radically different, right? Well, that is the common naturalistic secular story of the Bible and how it was transmitted to us uh, today. Well, it's very easy to refute that with a Mormon, factually speaking, by just telling them the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right? The Dead Sea Scrolls were the most important archaeological find for Christians of the last century. 1947, I believe it was. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the caves outside Qumran in the Holy Land, outside the Dead Sea, by a a Bedouin uh, shepherd boy. And uh, these scrolls had all sorts of different ancient scrolls to them, but the primary thing for our interest was it contained practically all of the Old Testament, with the exception, I think, of the Book of Esther, but they had different pieces of these scrolls of the Old Testament. They had a complete book of the book of Isaiah that was found. And this, for example, the book of Isaiah was gone over by the late, great uh, Gleason Archer, Old Testament Hebrew scholar, who went over it and, and concluded that... By putting the Dead Sea Scrolls together with the Masoretic text, which was the earliest Hebrew Bible that we had prior to the founding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the, the Masoretic text dated to around the oh, around the 9th, century AD. Okay, well the Dead Sea Scrolls came along and predated that about a thousand years. So you would think that if the Mormon secular telephone story was correct, we, of course, would be able to see the vast differences between the Masoretic text of the book of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls text of the book of Isaiah. But guess what? We don't see that. And there's only Mm. about a 5% difference. And that difference has to do with spelling, punctuation, grammar, nothing whatsoever to do with the content, which gives us reason to believe what the book of Isaiah says in uh, chapter 40, verse 8, when it says that the grass withers but the and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever.
1: And it also
0: gives Jesus even more credibility when Jesus said not one jot, not one chittle, the smallest little Hebrew characters will ever be lost from the law until all these things be fulfilled. Or Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Or Jesus said in John ten thirty five that Scripture cannot be broken. So we believe Jesus, and we believe on the basis of good reason, not just because we get a, what Mormons call a burning in the bosom, where they pray and they read this stuff over and they study it out in their minds and they pray about it and get this good feeling. We we. We're not talking about that. We're talking about good, solid reasons why you should believe what the Bible says about the perpetuity of Scripture, about the infallibility of Scripture, about the preservation of Scripture. And the Scripture is worth believing because Jesus believed it. So whether we understand all of what's going on with Scripture or not, if we're going to claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus, if he's going to be our master, then we've got to believe what he believed. And he believed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had such a high regard for the Scriptures as being the Word of God, the Word of the Lord our pure words, the silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Okay. And so the promises of the Bible are there, and the evidence of why we should believe the Bible has been preserved has been clearly found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, among other ancient sources as well. But popularly, we know this from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was found, oh, not even 100 years ago.
2: That's good. Now, hey, that's uh, yep. Now, I got to Go talk
0: about the character of the Mormon scriptures, right? I almost forgot about that. The Book of Mormon <laughs> is basically... A, an account of the prophets over here in the Americas who were waiting for Jesus to come. And so it's a period from about the Tower of Babel uh in about 2000, I don't know what it was, 2000 uh, BC to uh, primarily uh, the story of... Uh, Lehi taking his family uh, at around 600 BC over to the Americas, and then uh, the crowning event of the Book of Mormon is Jesus appearing to these people that were prophesied to uh, in this period that Jesus would come, and that uh, and it goes on to uh, all the wars that happen uh, back and forth. Between the two brothers that Lehi, or the two brothers that uh, Lehi had as children, so his two sons, Nephi and uh, Laman, and so you have these two warring tribes of uh, Nephi, who were the good white guys, and Laman, who were the bad black guys. Yes. You heard me correct here, okay? And I'm not just talking about uh, the character. I'm talking about what the Book of Mormon says, and that's their skin, okay? Wow. Their skin color. The Book of Mormon is quite clear Alma 3, 6, 2 Nephi, 20, uh twenty three, twenty five, Alma, uh, 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 Third Nephi, chapter. Two verses fourteen through sixteen says that the Lamanites, when they repented, their curse was taken from them. Well, what curse was that? Their black skin was taken from them. it says, and oh, they joined boy. themselves to the Nephites who had the white skin, and their skin was given to them. the nephites uh had the white skin and the curse of the black skin was given to the Lamanites so that they would be uh, considered ugly and to the uh, godly Nephites. And so the the Nephites would look down on on the, and so there wouldn't be any intermarriage going on because of this curse of uh, ugly, dark skin that once it's repented for, the people get rid of this curse and they become white again. I mean, this is all this is all throughout the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon tried to uh, downplay that a little bit by what it used to say before the 1980 version of the Book of Mormon, it used to call uh, the Nephites, as uh, the Nephites were referred to as a pure, or as a, excuse me, as a white and delightsome delight people. Well, after 1980, uh, they changed that to a pure and delightsome people, you see. But wow. still, they still have this problem of the Book of Mormon clearly talking about skin color in it. Which is racist? Yeah. It's just racist. It's it is uh, KKK material. It's it's white supremacist material. Like I, you know, as good as good an example as you get as the, as the KKK material. So that is basically wow. what you got going on with the the Book of Mormon, with the Doctrine and Covenants. You have a series of revelations primarily given through Joseph Smith in the early foundings of the Mormon Church. Okay. And then in the Pearl of Great Price, you have it made up of the book of Moses. You have it also made up of the book of Abraham.
1: You have
0: a um part of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible found in in there. And then you have a uh, history of Joseph Smith's uh, first vision, how Joseph Smith was wondering when he was 14 years of age what church he should join in 1820 back in upstate uh, New York in the Palmyra area. Actually, his home was in Manchester Uh, New York at the time uh, conjoining Palmyra and so he heard all this religious fervor that was going on and he became very confused and so he picked up the Bible and began reading James. James says in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him pray and ask God who will be very liberal in giving you wisdom and so Joseph Smith Went out very sincerely into the woods across from his home in this what's called the sacred grove, and he prayed to ask what church he should join. And lo and behold, he was visited by two separate personages. The person of the father who said to listen to his dear son, and the son told him that he would he was to join no other church. And the context of Joseph Smith's history in the Pearl of Great Price specifically mentions the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the Methodists. And Jesus says that he, Joseph Smith would, was to join no other church, for they were all wrong. All their creeds were an abomination. All their professors were corrupt that they draw near to me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. So with that, Jesus according to Mormonism damns all of traditional Christianity at least in the Protestant uh, uh, outgrowth of Christianity. So that is, and then you have like I said before, you have the Articles of Faith, the 13 Articles of Faith. And that is uh, that is Mormon scripture right there.
2: Okay, wonderful. Well, that's a, that's a good overview. Uh, let's go ahead and we need to take a uh, about a two or three minute break and we'll come back and look at the uh, Mormon view of salvation, the Mormon view of the afterlife and uh, again, contrast, uh, maybe be able to bring up some of the uh, objections that come up a lot when discussing with Mormons. So stay with us.
3: Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. If you had
2: one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions.
3: My question to you is, are Mormons Christians? Well, if a Christian is somebody who believes certain basic doctrines, uh, actually there are 14 of them, they're found in the Apostles' Creed, they're found in the Bible as the basis uh, for the gospel. You have to believe in one God, that there's three persons in one God. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was a human. Man's a sinner. Jesus died for uh, sins. You have to be justified by faith. If you line up those essential doctrines, there are about 14 of them, you'll see that Mormons deny most of them. So the question is, Can you be a Christian and deny most of the fundamental Christian doctrines? And the answer is no. Uh, Could you be a Buddhist and deny most of the fundamental Buddhist doctrines? Could you be a Muslim and deny uh, that uh, God is Allah and Muhammad was his prophet and that the Quran is the word of God? Obviously not. Uh, You can claim to be, but you aren't really because it doesn't correspond uh, to the facts. So Mormons are not uh, Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they all deny crucial fundamental Christian doctrines which makes them not Christians. People say, well, but they believe in God. Yeah, but which God? Uh, It's a finite God? It's a progression of God? It's a form of polytheism? They believe in Jesus. Yeah, but what Jesus? Uh, Is Jesus the brother of Lucifer? That's what Mormons believe. Right. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Well, can he be saved by believing in an angel, Uh, Michael the Archangel? Obviously not. So they claim to be Christian, but they don't prove to be Christian.
1: Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The situation at the
3: time of the flood was a situation of pure moral relativism where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like a description that was written in yesterday's newspaper. And when God destroyed all of that, the descendants of Noah come up with an idea to do exactly the same thing. They're going to build their own city, a city that will endure. And the crowning achievement of that city will be the tower that reaches
1: up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org.
2: All right, folks, and we are back with Rob Savolka. And just a reminder, next week we will uh, be interviewing Dr. Phil Fernandez, who was on the show about two weeks ago. We looked at his uh, book, Hijacking the Historical Jesus. Uh, Next week we will be going over his book, uh, The Atheist Delusion. So be sure to join us next week for that. So, we have been having a great discussion here with our friend Rob and looking at Mormonism. And we've so far looked at the review of God, uh, the view, and the review of the scriptures. I guess the next thing we need to look at is how is man made right with God in Mormon theology? Is there such a thing as sin? And is there such a thing as, as an afterlife, Rob?
0: Yeah, Mormons believe in sin, and that's what keeps us from the presence of God. Mormons believe in an afterlife in which there are three kingdoms of glory. So Mormons believe that after this life, depending on uh, what you do with the Mormon gospel, is where you end up in a uh, holding taint before the judgment. So what that means is, is that Mormons will go to a place called paradise and all other people, non-Mormons, will go to a place called spirit prison. Okay? And so we wait until the judgment and then we have to stand before the judgment with our good works. And depending on how well we do... Depends on what what kingdom of glory we go to. So Christ's death on the cross for a Mormon was necessary. Mormons say that they believe in the atonement of Christ. Mormons believe that without the atonement of Christ, there would be no way that we could go and be in the presence of the Father. What Mormons mean by that is that Jesus has given all people... The opportunity to go to one of three degrees of glory, and so this this uh, this first level of degree of glory is called the celestial uh, kingdom, and the celestial kingdom is where the really bad people of Earth—the murderers, the liars, the adulterers where all these people go. Okay, the second level is called the terrestrial kingdom. And that's where the pretty good people go. People that were, like you and I, Gavin, were religiously minded, who uh, loved to do good works, and according to their religion, they end up in the terrestrial kingdom. Now, the highest degree of glory is called the celestial kingdom. And in the celestial kingdom, that's where God dwells. So if you want to go and be with God, you've got to do everything the Mormon church requires of you. Now, even within the celestial kingdom, there are degrees of glory within the celestial kingdom. Because in the celestial kingdom, you find out in Doctrine and Covenants section 132 that the angels are there. And the angels are individuals who are uh, humans that that are good Mormons but have never entered into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. So they could not be sealed for time and all eternity. And so those that do get sealed for time and all eternity and do everything perfectly that the Mormon church requires, they are the ones that can go on to be in the highest level of the celestial kingdom and become gods for their own worlds, you see. And so the Uh, Mormon view is such that Jesus' death is only a necessary condition, Actually, Mormons have watered down the death of Christ, and it's the Mormon uh, view of the cross is really devalued because for Mormons the atonement is really where where it really happened was in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus sweated as it were great drops of blood. Wow! So the cross has become diminished in Mormonism. And Jesus' atonement, the the work really happened in the garden, and it was just finished off. Jesus was just finished off on the cross. But for Christians, the cross, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.14, God forbid lest I boast in anything but the cross of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians one eighteen, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and the salvation. 1 Peter 2.24 says that in his own body, on the tree, Jesus paid for all our sins. That's where the atonement happened, according to the Bible, is on the cross, not in the garden. The garden is where Jesus was tempted, to see if he would follow through with the atonement that would happen on the cross. And Jesus succeeded in the the garden. He submitted his will unto the will of the Father. But so for Mormons, Mormons think that their good works are a necessary requirement in order to get to be in the presence of the Father in the celestial kingdom. Their own scripture teaches this very clearly in the Book of Mormon. It says in Moroni uh, 1032, the last book of the Book of Mormon says that ye have to deny yourself all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, and then his grace is sufficient for you. Uh, another verse in the Book of Mormon, Second Nephi twenty-five twenty-three says that we are saved by grace, which sounds really good to a Christian. But then it goes on in the in the verse to say, after all we can do. Well, come on, who has done all they can do? Who can do all they can do? I mean, really now? I mean, we we could have prayed a lot more today. You know what I'm saying? We could have served <laughs> our family a lot better than we did today. We could have been a lot more uh, obedient to authority uh, than we were today. We could have been a whole heck of a lot better than we were today. And that just goes to show that none of us can do all that we can do. We all suck. I like to say we're kind of like gas prices. You know, some are three... 28. I don't know what you're paying out there. So out here in Utah, a pretty good price right now is $273. Uh, Costco, 263 Hey, that's pretty good. You know what? It all sucks that we're paying that much for gas. And that's kind of <laughs> the message of the Bible is that for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God, and that even our own righteousness are as filthy rags, as Isaiah 64, verse 6 says. So no matter what good you can do, we are all going to stand before God as wretches, and we need someone, the worthy one, to be able to take care of all that stuff that we cannot take care of. And that's where the worthy one comes in and pays for all our sin, past, present, and future. And so the hope for the Christian is that he is trusting in what Christ has done for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made in the righteousness of God in him, Christ Jesus, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. The message of the Bible says, In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is not a result of works. It's through faith, not a result of works, lest you boast about it. Did you get that? So we can't stand before God on the judgment. And we can't say when God says, why should I let you into the celestial kingdom? And we can't say, Well, Heavenly Father, look at all the great stuff I did. I did all the necessary things that were were required so that I could go through the temple. I went through my temple recommend interview, and I was able to get that recommend to go through the temple. And so I gave 10% of my money away. Huh? I um, kept the word of wisdom, which is the Mormon health code, which is no drinking of alcohol or hot drinks, interpreted as uh, no hot coffee. Uh, I, I, you know, in, I didn't. So you can't stand before God and say I kept the health code, or you can't stand before God and say, hey. I memorized the secret handshakes that we learned in the temple ceremony, right? Or or the secret password. Let me whisper that in your ear so that I can go through the... I didn't... Look, I can't say all this. I can't tell God I wore the temple garments night and day as a sign of my faithfulness and devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't do any of this stuff Because the Bible says it's all as filthy rags. It's like if I were to cap some little girl and I'm to stand before a a judge and the judge is just beside himself and saying, can you give some account of why you killed this little girl? And I say, well, no, no, not really, but I can tell you of all the good things I did. Uh, the, the day before, I babysat the girl. It was really nice to her. I fed her dinner. And, uh, hey, you know, the day before that, I uh, gave to United Way. Yeah. Or, hey, the day before that, I walked an old lady across the street. The judge is going to look at you like you're nuts. Right. It has nothing whatsoever to do with payment for the sin that separates us from an all-holy judge. But the good news of the gospel is, is that the all-holy judge has taken our place, and he is extending that pardon for us, not on the basis of what we can do, but on the basis of what he has done in dying for all sin. Past, present, and future. That's the good news of the gospel. And that is the hope that the Christian has. That is the peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 1 says. And as Romans 8 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are faultless to stand before the throne of grace because, as Romans 4 5 says, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Did you hear that? We are counted for righteousness. We are faultless to stand before the throne. And so there is no good reason whatsoever that we cannot be in the celestial kingdom. There is no reason that we cannot be in the presence of, of the heavenly father because Jesus has taken it all and he extends to us the righteousness that we are clothed in in him that is the good news of the Christian gospel and the bad news of the Mormon gospel is that you not only have to confess your sins but you have to forsake your sins and that you have to Keep the commandments as the Doctrine and Covenants teaches continually. And if you mess up and and you screw up just one time, then as the Doctrine and Covenants section 82 teaches, all the former sins come on you. And guess what? The Book of Mormon says that he cannot, in Alma chapter 11, verse 37, he cannot save them. In their sins, this is all bad news. And so the Mormon is trying the best he can, trying as their own prophet Spencer W. Kimball said in his work The Miracle of Forgiveness. He said in page uh, 164 through 165 that trying is not sufficient; that you've got to be perfect because there's God doesn't give you a command that He doesn't expect you to keep. And so whether it's in this life or in the lives that come, contrary to what the Book of Mormon says, you've only got this life to make it right. You've got to deny yourself all ungodliness, and you've got to keep the commandments continually in order to be saved to the utmost and enter into the celestial kingdom and go on to your exaltation to become gods and to be with your family for time and all eternity, the only way that's going to happen is not only the death of, or the atonement of the Lord Jesus, but also you keeping the commandments eternally. Well, good luck with that, because there's no one that can do that.
2: Amen. There's only that's one, the right. Lord
0: Jesus, that has paid for it all, and our hope is in Him, not us. And so the Mormons have bad news, the Christians have good news, and that requires Mormons to repent of this cult that is in keeping them in bondage to this work based system, and it's just driving these people nuts because they know, well, these people know that they can't do this if they're being be honest with you, there's no way they can do this stuff. And so they're right. denial by telling you that they're trying their best and God's just going to overlook us and that someday they're going to be able to keep the commandments continually. Ah, come on. It's not going to work. <laughs>
2: Amen. That's
0: anyway, a I mean, why would I even want Mormonism? When I'm already secured in being in the celestial kingdom, my exaltation with God in the celestial kingdom, on, not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what the only worldly one there is has done for me. Why in the world would I want the bondage of Mormonism? It makes no right. sense. The sense yeah. in the cross of Jesus Christ.
2: That's right, yep. there's no no gospel, no good news in Mormonism for sure um got about ten minutes left uh Rob talk to us about what are some ways uh that we can go about evangelizing our Mormon friends, what are some bad ways to do it, and what are some tips that we can we can uh employ to talk to our Mormon friends
0: well, look i I'm very uh I like incorporating a lot of different evangelistic methods for reaching out to the Mormon people. Um, and so you're talking to a guy here that likes street preaching, right? That might be a way that some people in your audience might like to go out and preach, Uh people might be motivated to start their own website or their own blog, right, or have their own broadcast or whatever to get the word out to more people about what Mormonism is all about or to try to uh, advertise your site in front of Mormon churches or Mormon temples, right, or Mormon events. These are these are all different ways of tithing. Uh, with your... With your own family, you need to be in prayer for your own family and, and your and your friends, too, that God would give you the words to say, or if you're in very close family, personal situations, that God will give you the words not to say and that he'd keep, you, keep your mouth closed and have you concentrating on loving uh, your dear family and friends into the kingdom. That might be something that God wants you to concentrate on, just like that wife in 1 Peter 3, who had to keep her mouth shut when she's married to an unbelieving spouse, so that he would be won over by the love that was shared by this believing wife. Let's see, the believing wife has to be ready, several verses later in, in, in verse 15, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that you have in gentleness and respect, so you got to love these people. you got to be patient with these people. Hey, that might require you saying some hard things sometimes it might require you uh yelling, lifting up your voice uh, uh, it might so so more people can hear you. It might require you destroying bad arguments, but What is driving all this is a real love for these people that they'll be able to see, that they know that you are driven to see them in the kingdom of God someday and that you don't want to see them end up with Satan in hell forever. Mormon people have got to see that. And so we've got to be patient. We can't be making fun of these people. We can't be uh, ridiculing them we can't be wanting to isolate ourselves from them. We want to uh be taking them out for dinners, for lunches, for meals. We want to uh have them come over and spend time with our family. We want to we want to involve uh ourselves in their lives, you see, and share lives with them. We want to be able to in- invite them to our churches and see how uh, Christianity functions out, outside of their own bubble. Because many of these people haven't been to a Christian worship service. They have no idea. My, uh, I just watched uh, uh, former Bishop Earl. He's got this show called The Ex-Mormon Files. And I just yesterday watched my own dear sister-in-law, my wife's sister. Uh, She was on that show. Her name's Melanie Bocut. And she shared how uh, years before my wife had uh, invited her to come to her church, and they didn't say anything about Mormons at all, but she was exposed to how uh, Christians – were so passionately in love with the Lord Jesus, and and their style of music was it was so uh, passionate toward the Lord Jesus, and and they're raising their hands to the Lord, and and they and people were just excited about the Lord, and she could see that, you know, and she could see a a very a stark difference between that and what all, uh, the Mormon Church goes through every uh Sunday in in this very formal very regimented very rules oriented uh worship service and so they're, and, and they and they Mormons get to experience a real freedom that they don't have in in the Mormon church there so i would invite you guys to invite these Mormon people into your own church services and be ready because they're going to be asking you to come and check out their own church services, and you guys go along with them. Go to their church services and take notes so that you guys can talk. Mm. You'll have talking points about, well, why do you guys do this? Why don't you pray to Jesus? Why do you just mention Jesus at the end of a prayer? Where's all the talk about Jesus in your own? I mean, you're supposed to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, after all. Where's all the talk about Jesus? I find very little there except at the end of a prayer. And so you can bring out all these different talking points by going to their own church. So, hey, I'm just talking off the top of my head here, Devin, but uh, these are different ways in which you can enter into the Mormon mindset. And all the while, you need to be praying that God would, grant mercy and grant repentance to these people that we might be able to see them in the kingdom of God someday. And don't give up. You've got to be patient because it takes years for these people to go through uh, this. all the headaches and the deconstruction. It's a very messy business. And so be patient, but keep after them. I I know this one gal who's a friend of mine on Facebook. She's agnostic now. But, hey, that's, uh, at least she's more open to the truth claims of Christianity than she was, oh ten 10 years ago when she saw me standing out in front of a temple opening with my sign that said dot org, And she shelved that. And she said a couple years ago, her shelf came crashing down. But it took eight years before that shelf came crashing down, and she remembered com, right? Wow. And so you got to be faithful in sticking in with this. And a lot of these people, we're not going to know what kind of influence we had on them until we get to heaven someday and we see them there in the kingdom. So you give right. them of God's word, you do it in love, you're persistent with them, you meet their needs as best you can, and you hope, you know, at the end of it all, that we get to see them there and leave it up to God. He's the one that's got to give the increase, all, you know, Geez, you know what, what the Bible says, one plants, the other waters, it's God who gives the increase, so you got to trust him for the increase,
2: Amen. Rob, I love your passion. Um, it's, it's refreshing to see your heart for people and, uh, you know, it, it comes through. You really love these people. You really love truth and, you know, why else would you dedicate your life to doing it, right? Amen.
0: Yeah, I moved up here because I love warms If I didn't love these people, I'd just shut up and go surfing or, you know,
2: something like that. Yeah, that's right. Well, I appreciate you being on. I love to have you Come back on again. Maybe we could do a show on uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and do the same kind of format with them. Because you know, living in America, um, the primary people I think we run into a lot of the time are going to be uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses on your doorstep. So yeah. we need to know uh, kind of what they believe. So yeah, I really, really appreciate you. Give us, give us your websites again or email for people to be able to contact you.
0: Yeah, my e- my email is rob at mormoninfo dot org. That's rob at mormoninfo.org. You can find me on Facebook, Rob Savolka. Uh, I'll add you to our we have a mormoninfo.org dot org discussion page. uh found, go to Mormoninfo.org. Uh, that'll take you to the Facebook page. We'll also have uh dot org for Jehovah's Witnesses, Musliminfo.org for Muslims, CourageousChristiansUnited.org or .com for uh, general um, uh, answering general attacks against the uh, Christian faith. So I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email sometime. You can also call me. My phone number is 801-738-0539. That's 801 801- 7380539. So thanks for having me and uh God bless you as you're doing the show and may many people come to know God better and stay away from the cults and false religions and philosophies that are leading people to hell.
2: Amen. I really really appreciate you. You're you're a good example for us younger men in the faith. So we uh Really, really appreciate all that you're doing out there, and we'll keep you uh, in our prayers for sure.
0: May God bless you, Dan.
2: All right. All right, folks, join us next week. We'll have Dr. Phil Fernandez on. We'll be looking at his book, The Atheist Delusion, which is really a response to uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and we'll be challenging uh, his presuppositions and uh, the arguments he gives in that book, Against Christianity. You don't want to miss that. Uh, Dr. Fernandez is a well-known apologist, speaker. Uh, he's done numerous uh, formal debates, and uh, just a an just all-around great guy. So join us next week for that. Again, in August, we are going to be dedicating the month to creation science and looking at what the Bible says about science, contrasting it with the theory of evolution, We'll be having some people on from the Discovery Institute as well as Creation Ministries International. So appreciate everybody joining us. And until next week, God bless. One more thing. Feel free to Mm -hmm. uh, message us at Theology Matters uh, with the Blues at Facebook.com. God bless.